talking about Christ and the law. And we're going to be having this uh, cursory dive into the relationship uh, between Jesus and the law of the Old Testament. Uh, last week was an important week to be here uh, for the sermon. So if you weren't here for the sermon last week, you're going to miss it a little bit. And you may think that throughout this sermon, I'm going to be diving right into legalism. And I'm going to be uh, holding law keeping up as a... As a as almost a, a means of salvation. But if you hear last week's sermon, uh, it will make things a lot clearer to you, but I did not record it. So you're a bit out of luck. But if you think I'm preaching legalism, come have a yarn with me afterwards and we'll nut it out. It is. Oh, did you record it? Alice coming in clutch, good stuff. All right, last week, um, we, we don't want to look at what the world says about what is righteous or even worse, what our emotions tell us is right, but rather we look to the rock-solid principles that we find in God's law. That's what we learn. And we recognize for the average 21st century reader, we kind of struggle with the Old Testament a bit, don't we? I mean, we can just be honest. We do struggle. The culture's foreign. There's seemingly irrelevant measurements of the tabernacle, long genealogies of names that don't seem important, a series of laws regarding ritual cleanness and uncleanness, how to deal with diseases, different law cases that feature, well, far too many donkeys. And we read it and we think, how does this relate to us? How is this important for me? How is this important for my family? And how is this important for my community and my society? And yet, in our better moments as Christians, we remind ourselves we follow Christ. And we want to have a Christ-like attitude to Christ's law. We want to know how Christ's law applies to us. Not an attitude where we allow our 21st century sensibilities to get into the way of what God is actually trying to say to us. And so the law of God is so very, very important. I really want to get that across today, and I hope I can achieve that by the end of my sermon. Um, and I believe that it gets more important with every passing year. So my objective this afternoon is to convince you that the law of God is good, that it is important not just for you, but for your family, for your community, and for your country. But most importantly, I want you to see your Savior Jesus more clearly every time you venture into the strange and beautiful lands of the Old Testament. So we're going to be looking at the three functions of the law of God, what we must keep as Christians, and why they are important. And so here's the three functions of the law of God. Keep these in your mind because they're going to be helpful to think of later, uh, especially if you ever find yourself in a conversation about the law. The first function of the law is the moral law. It teaches us morality. The second one is the judicial law, which is the laws that are given to Israel in their judicial system. And the third one is the ceremonial laws, things like the, uh, the sacrificial system, the feasts, the festivals, the dietary requirements. And so there are new, numerous places we could go in the Bible to explore it, but I'm going to try to restrict myself as best I can to 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be for uh, roughly half of my sermon. Uh, but we're going to be looking at how the Apostle Paul wields the law of the Old Testament. And by doing so, how we can do the same. So from verse 17 of chapter 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So whenever we want to know how to think as new covenant Christians, the first thing we want to do is to look how the apostles apply God's law in the New Testament. And right off the bat, we see the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy is applying multiple principles from the law of God to a specific church situation that he is uh, helping Timothy to understand. The first thing he's talking about is the issue of paying church elders. Now, church elders is the pastors, the staff, the people that work for the church that have been set aside to perform the role of an elder. And an elder is not necessarily the pastor, but every pastor will be an elder. And so for those that are in the church, he says you should pay them. They're worthy of double honor, in fact, especially those who are diligent preachers and teachers. Now, he doesn't just appeal to their conscience. He could say, as an apostle, I command you to pay these men, but he doesn't say that. He appeals to the law of God, and in our passage, he does so three times. At the start, he talks about an often misunderstood law, Deuteronomy 25.4. You may have been scratching your heads how this has any application to what Paul's saying, but it's actually a profound point. It says here, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, you kind of have to have a bit of understanding about the farming practices of ancient Israel, but when you had a whole bunch of wheat that you would bring in, it would have to be threshed. It would have to be beaten. And the best way to do that is you attach these huge wheels to the back of an ox, and the ox just runs this wheel over all the wheat, and it breaks up the wheat from the husks so you can really get at it. And so this, mock, this ox sorry, would be working long, brutal hours to get this harvest, but occasionally the ox would, would stop because it's exhausted, and eat a bit of the grain, eat a bit of the hay that came off from this grain as well. But a very cruel farmer would put a muzzle on that ox to stop that ox from getting any of that grain, so they would have the most amount of grain possible. And we find in the law of God this command, don't do that. The principle that's being get at here is the ox has earned the right to share in the harvest because the ox worked for the harvest. That they deserve a share in it because they contributed their labor to it. And if God cares so much about ox, think about how much he cares about people. In the next breath, he quotes Jesus from Luke 10:7, where Jesus says, For the laborer deserves his wages. Interesting that the Apostle Paul, in order to pay the elders, the staff that are working for the church, he first brings them to the law of God and then talks about how the law of God is in, um, uh, it, together works with what Jesus says, that the commands of Jesus and the law of God are one and the same because Jesus is the same God as the God who gave the commands to Israel on Mount Sinai. And next he turns to accusations. Now, if you've been in church for a while, especially if you read church news or you get onto different websites that teach about church stuff, you know that sometimes an elder 
can find themselves being accused of misconduct. And if that happens, the church must look into the matter. But the church cannot make any decision on one line of evidence. This is exactly what we see in Deuteronomy 17.6. It's on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. You cannot use the death sentence on someone or judge really any judicial case on one testimony. You need two or three independent lines of evidence in order to decide on a matter. This is where we get the idea of being innocent until proven guilty. And so, as you can see here, the Apostle Paul once again draws on a principle from the law and applies that principle in a church setting. And this is important for us to remember as Christians because big-time pastors can get accused of misconduct. And it may be true, but it might not be true. We don't know. We need at least two or three independent lines of testimony before we can accept that person's accusation as truth. Because if we allow any accusation in, well, we'll end up with character assassinations, a person's perceived motives will rule our decision-making and rule our judgments on a matter. And this is so important because if you've ever been the subject of a false accusation, it is crushing to go through that. It can destroy your reputation, it can shatter your confidence, and for some, it has completely ruined their life. Uh, before I was a pastor, I did, well, while I was a pastor, I also did a bit of teaching on the side. And I have known teachers to be the victims of very, very unfair accusations. Uh, and some of them are no longer teaching in that profession because of these things that have happened. If you read the newspapers or you watch the news, you'll quickly learn that accusations in our society are pretty much as good as guilty. The Me Too movement was famous for saying, believe or woman, women. But what would a Christian do in that circumstance? I mean, do women, all women tell the truth? I mean, ladies, I'm sure you know quite a few women that do not tell the truth. And I'm sure you yourself sometimes have not uh, told the whole truth. And God knows this about humans. We all can bear false witness. Innuendo, character assassinations, false accusations, they're a staple of fallen humans. But at the same time, God knows that there are real predators out there. Swindlers, thieves, perverse men, perverse women out there that will bend the truth, that will abuse people. And that is why a truthful accusation should get traction because there will be multiple lines of evidence in that situation. There will be more things to look into. And so in our passage, if an elder is found guilty, Paul says, rebuke them harshly. Rebuke them harshly when they get found out. Don't cover it up. And this is very important because there has been some churches that have indeed covered up misconduct. But Paul doesn't say, okay, just, uh, you know, kind of rebuke them in private. He says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that all may fear. Because we don't hold anyone outside of scrutiny. Everyone is, should be scrutinized if they commit any form of misconduct, especially in the church and especially if you're an elder. And so notice the two ways the law of God has been applied here. One is a moral usage. You know, we've got to be careful not to ascribe any sort of guilt to someone until all our evidence comes forward. But the second one is judicial. You cannot punish anyone until you have evidence. And this goes back to the Ten Commandments. You guys may remember this one. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
And really, that's what this is all about. And we have every right to demand our countries to give every person a fair trial. It's Paul's next point. He says in verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And that word partiality is another word for favoritism. This is, once again, another quote from the law. Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Christians seem to have lost this art of being able to apply God's law to different situations, to situations in their lives and in their families, in their churches, communities, and even in their countries. Did you see how effortless, I can't say that word, effortlessly, Paul draws on all these different principles from the law of God? And yet evangelicals are often terrified of trying to do anything even remotely similar to that. We all know some, you know, for instance, we've been burnt. We know that guy who woodenly applies the law of God and it feels more like a sledgehammer than grace. But others, they avoid it like a plague. Some are just straight up intimidated by the law of God. And you can admit that if that's you, we can grow in it. We can get better at it. I mean, I can understand why. Do you know how many laws there are in the Old Testament? My, my uh, number here is 613, but uh, yeah, I guess it depends how you count them or which ones you count. Uh, but that's a lot of laws. That's a lot of laws. And yet, I want to remind you what those laws are. Those laws are paraphrases of the Ten Commandments. So as you go down the Ten Commandments, you find that the laws that come after the Ten Commandments are just helping us to apply those Ten Commandments in uh, our situations. But of course, if you know your Bible even more, the Ten Commandments are just paraphrases of something else, aren't they? And what are they paraphrases of? The two great commandments. I'll read them for you. Mark 12 says this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And we go, oh man, those 613 get brought down to two. That's easy. I can sort this one out. But don't be so quick. Because it's one thing for me to tell you, love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, excellent. And then you walk out here and you feel good about yourself and you get into certain situations and you're like, I actually don't know how to love my neighbor as myself. That's actually a tricky one. ceremonial laws in the New Testament, we know not to follow them. Why? Because they are a shadow, a foretaste of the good things to come. We already have the good things. We don't need to go back anymore. It doesn't make any sense to go and follow the things when we have Christ. Imagine being lost in a forest. You're stuck in this forest, it's dark, there are wolves howling, you can see through the canopy, like the, the moon is out. It's scary. You want to get out of this forest. And your phone is out of batteries and your light's on. And there it is, a sign pointing to the exit. That's all you wanted to see, right? A way out of it. 
And so you, you follow the sign, you see another sign, and every sign that you're getting to, you're thinking, wow, I'm almost out of here. And then you get out of the forest. But it'd be foolish to think that all you wanted to see was the sign. It'd be weird to walk back into the forest again and go and stand before the sign and go look at the sign again and think, wow, this sign is amazing. Right? Because the sign was pointing somewhere. The sign was getting to the destination you wanted to get to in the first place. And so all the ceremonial law were these wonderful signs that pointed you in the right direction. But it would be bizarre, now that we have Christ, to turn around and walk back into the forest. To walk back into ignorance. To walk back into these things. We don't sacrifice animals any longer because we have Christ. The perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice one single time, he says here, once for all. We don't have a priest going into the holy places in the temple because Christ has entered the holy of holies and is our great high priest. You don't need any man, you don't need any woman to be a priest anymore. You have Christ. We don't go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. There is no temple to worship at in Jerusalem at the moment because Jesus is our temple and his body in the church is where we worship. We still have a sacrifice, we still have a priest, we still have a temple, but they are in Christ now. Does that make sense? Uh, why would we want anything else? Why would we go back to the former things? Uh, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I feel like I don't have enough time to do justice to the same way was. But I hope you understand when you read the Old Testament now what those laws mean. By faith in Jesus, you too have our boldness to approach the throne of God. Because his sacrifice on the cross has completely perfected those who have been sacrificed. The law of God revives the soul, as Gary read out before. Because not only does it train us in righteousness and help us to create just societies, but most importantly, in every aspect, it leads us. shows us our sin before God, and it shows us our state as sinners before Him, destined to eternal punishment. But it also shows us that God will provide a sacrifice that will sanctify and make perfect His own people. I hope you've gotten a better glimpse into the law of God. And I hope it has broadened the application of the law of God. And I hope now you have something to measure things against to see whether they are righteous or unrighteous. But even more, I hope that you get a better glimpse into why Jesus is the most important person to get right. Trust in his name, believe in his promise, and never grow weary in growing in him and trusting in him. Let's go. Father, we have delved into some weighty topics. And Lord, we've only just scratched the surface of how wonderful and perfect and pure your glory is. I pray, Lord, that you would remove all the, the waste in our minds, the things that are, we inherit from our 21st century uh, upbringings and the culture that we have here that is not aligned with you and your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we would have a renewed sense of love and appreciation for your word and your law. 
Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to learn how to actually apply it in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and in our societies. Lord, would you strengthen your church? Would you strengthen these families that are raising their children up and defending that mission of the Lord? Would you grant to us wisdom and knowledge through your son, Jesus? In his name I pray. Amen.